Hi everyone, my name is Martin Matichevich and I'm the co-founder of Beautiful Minds. If you've listened to the previous episodes, you'll know that this podcast is all about elevating your personal and professional life. Each week we bring on an incredible thinker, someone who's at the forefront of their specific field, and then they deliver a valuable lesson within the discussion. It's up to you to then take that lesson and put it into action. We can't do that for you. However, in recent weeks, there's been a lot of changes out there globally. Things like global lockdown measures, self-isolation, social distancing, and many more. These are all unfamiliar things, especially to me. However, that doesn't mean opportunities cease to exist. No, quite the opposite. And that's why it's my aim to tailor the content specific to what we're going through. Don't miss out. The first time in my life, as a 50-year-old person, rather than letting events pass me by, I thought, well, what, what is it I can do? There must be others like me that, that also are a little bit lost. So I start chasing around young ladies that are half my age, and I thought, well, I don't think I'd be very good at that. The easiest thing to do is do nothing. But I think the thing to do is engage with anything you can. I think it goes back to possibly what Kennedy said in Berlin many years ago about, you know, ask not what you, your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. To read anything, to absorb any information, to reach out to people and, and don't be shy about it. Obviously, this regional debate is going on for years about the fact that the southeast of England attracts a lot of wealth. It's interesting if you look at films of London 60 years ago in the 1960s, London was a bit drab and sort of run down and it definitely didn't look as pristine as it does today. What is it that the person that's employing 300 people that's running this business, that's grown it from, you know, 30 people or perhaps grown it from their back bedroom and they're now employing 300 people. So there's 300 people running around the UK with open opportunity. What, what is it that makes these people tick? Young people out there that might listen to this. Do not be deterred. Do, do not listen to the person that says, no, you shouldn't do that because you will, you know, you just shouldn't. Always reach out. And a lot of these people that I'm waxing lyrical about, they have a strong sense of duty. They want to help. They've reached where they are in life and they want to put things back in. And it's, it's actually immensely inspiring. And there are a lot of them out there. My name is Martin Matichevich. This is Beautiful Minds. My guest today is Harry Corbett. Harry, you're the founder and organizer of the Intelligence Forums, which you founded in 2008 here in London, not long after the collapse of the Lehman Brothers. Your aim was to bring together economists to speak to an audience to give a view as to what might happen next. Today, your mission is to bring more commercial dialogue between London and other regions, encourage more public and private sector collaboration, provide greater communication between Parliament and the business community, and to create an environment for business people to build long-term successful commercial relationships. You're a great believer in creating hope and opportunity for the wider society through business investment. Harry, it's a pleasure to have you on Beautiful Minds. I just wanna say I think what you're doing is fantastic and there aren't many business events that have resonated with me as much as yours. Welcome. Thank you very much indeed, very kind of you. Thank you. So Harry, I was gonna start off with the Lehman Brothers and when they collapsed, yeah. what was going through your mind and what made you start this project? 
from that? Well, like a lot of people, I would disappear to read various financial journals over the years. And it became a bit of a habit. So in the probably the from about the mid 1990s onwards, the only time I could really absorb the Financial Times to, to actually sit down and properly read it was on a Saturday afternoon. And I disappeared to the, my favorite coffee shop with the Financial Times and, you know, try and get an update of what had happened in the week before and such an excellent newspaper. So as this financial crisis in the 2006, seven, eight period evolved, you know, I'd be reading in the FT on a Saturday afternoon. I'd be thinking, my Lord, things don't look too good. And, you know, I was just, as the situation got worse and worse, there's one thing that came through to me. It was actually incredibly interesting. Uh, as, as awful as it might be, the situation that was unfolding. And I think when Lehman Brothers collapsed, I can remember it was a September afternoon, and actually I wanted, for the first time in my life, as a 50-year-old person, rather than letting events pass me by, I thought, well, what, what is it I can do? Is there, is there anything I can do? And, you know, to be fair, I wasn't a centre of influence. I mean, the Prime Minister wasn't going to ring me up and say, what do you think? And I wasn't particularly important. In fact, I wasn't important at all. And I wasn't a, a person with a large amount of money behind me to be able to say, look, would you like a donation to the um, sort of disaster fund? So all I could do was, I thought, honestly, I read this press, I read the financial updates, you know, I read The Economist, I read the Financial Times. Clearly, it, it doesn't make me an expert in these things, but I thought, I just really don't understand where this situation has come from. And if I don't understand it, there must be others like me that, that also are a little bit lost on this situation. So I thought, well, what is it I would like to be right now? of all the things in the world. And I thought, an economist, because they seem to be the one, they, they were such in demand at the time. And I thought, well, I'm not an economist. Well, the best thing I can do is actually build some relationships with some economists um, to bring them in, to actually try and put into simple terms where we might be going next as this situation unfolded post Lehman, and Lehman being the trigger point where I felt, in my limited experience, that this was the point when things went from being awful to really awful. So I thought, let's get some clarity as the situation lurched from one disaster zone to the next. And, and you know, what was really interesting to me, and I'm sure to many others, was, was staid central bankers, these people that we never really saw much of. They might have been mentioned in the press. I'm sure Gordon Brown had perhaps bought, you know, the Chancellor had bought more um, focus on central bankers by giving the Bank of England independence in the early 2000s. But, you know, these, these people were suddenly running around the world rescuing it. So put that in the mix. I just thought, what an interesting story. Does that help? Absolutely, yeah. I think it's an amazing story to be told. I think we've all seen different articles, watched different adaptations, different films. I know one that I was told to watch by my economics teacher at, at school was 
too big to fail. Um, yeah. And that was a very good film. It just showed exactly what the mentality of these bankers were. And yeah, it was, it was really interesting. So what was your initial reaction to being able to bring it to life? Were you excited? Were you surprised? No, I, I, I never had any great intention. I think I was bored. So it was like a form of midlife crisis. And what it was, was, you know, do I go and buy a Ferrari? And in truth, I couldn't afford one. Um, do I start chasing around young ladies that are half my age? And I thought, well, I don't think I'd be very good at that. Um, or do, you know, what, what is it I do? And I thought this, this, this actually might go some way towards giving me more fulfillment in my working life. I didn't have an agenda with it. It was something I did out of office hours and it was just a hobby when it started. Um, you know, and, and we, we and, and sometimes I was a bit surprised because, you know, there were a lot of people willing to help and willing to, I think people like, it's like this interview, you know, we all like to be uh, the center of attention for five minutes. So if you give somebody an opportunity to speak, I think a lot of people are exceedingly grateful for that opportunity, as long as it's not too inconvenient. And, you know, I wrote to, I think Vince Cable was the chap in Parliament that had actually been going on about credit crisis problems way before we realized there was a general problem with it. And of course, he was an economist, I think at Shell at one stage. So, you know, I wrote to him and he came in to speak. And I think I found that in, uh, very encouraging because I thought, well, if people like him are prepared to give up some of their time, then others will too. Uh, it was quite satisfying. It, it sort of ticked the box. It was the boredom box ticked. Does that help? Yeah. So from boredom came fulfillment. Yeah. And I think a lot of people in their 20s at the moment are trying to find that fulfillment, especially now in lockdown. A lot of people have been put on furlough. They're reassessing their life and what they want to do, what they want to contribute to society. What would be your advice to them? Well, I, I suppose I wish I was one of these people that was considered to be a sort of the guru of all answers. But I was thinking about that point slightly this morning when I wouldn't say the person concerned phoned me up to ask advice. You know, he wasn't 20, getting on for 30. And he was asking, what did I think he should do? And I said, well, the easiest thing to do is do nothing. So, you know, there's, a, there's sadly, there's always people in the, there are always people in the world that are be what I call doubtful about any result ever happening from doing anything. But I think the thing to do is engage with anything you can. Um, and actually, I think it goes back to possibly what Kennedy said in Berlin many years ago about, you know, ask not what you, your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. By that, I, I don't mean some sort of um, overt jingoism. What I mean is, if you reach out to help other people, so a lot of the time it will come back and help you. And I, and I think that things are clearly incredibly difficult. So to be sensitive to many people at the moment, things are, I mean, if that previous financial crisis where Intelligence Forum started in 2008 was precarious, this is triply precarious. It's, it's, it's a truly momentous and dreadful time. So 
I think to engage with anything, to read anything, to absorb any information, uh, to, to, to reach out to people and, and don't be shy about it and, and ask for help because sometimes a lot of the time people are very prepared, very much prepared to give it. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's, that's spot on. The community that you've built around the country wasn't overnight. I know obviously you put a lot of work into it and it took time, consistency, yeah. engagement, as you said, right? So yeah. the starting point, like, was there, any, was there a point where you thought you might give up or it was getting too much? Oh, there's always those times. And what, I, what it was for me was obviously this regional debate is going on for years about the fact that the southeast of England attracts a lot of wealth. It's interesting, if you look at films of London 60 years ago, in the 1960s, London was a bit drab and sort of run down and it definitely didn't look as pristine as it does today. And, and London's attracted clearly volumes of wealth. The city's done incredibly well. And I, I'm not really trying to take, suggest for a minute we take anything away from that. But in that, that those great industrial areas, like, for example, the Midlands, an area I know a little, it, it's probably struggled to find its way slightly since the deindustrialization of the 1960s, 70s, and, and the sort of final curtain of the early 80s. And I, I just think there's so much opportunity in these areas. Obviously, there are success stories there today. I'm not suggesting to the people in the Midlands that they've lost their way. But I, I think there needs to be more opportunities provided and without taking anything away from London, because it's clearly working, but to actually provide more focus on what can be done up and down the country. I'm not the person to provide the answers, but what I like to do is bring in people or to actually collaborate where I can with people that do have the intellect and some of these debates can take place. So in, in building relationships with the Midlands, with, with Leeds, and soon we're going to Edinburgh, I, I just think it's key. Obviously, we can't be anywhere. People say to me, Manchester, and, and clearly that's a, a debate, is Manchester the second city? I think you were at university in Liverpool, so Manchester, Liverpool, that area, clearly there's a lot going on there, and we're not there. But we decided to focus on Leeds, another great city, clearly because we're a small business, a small entity, and it's difficult to grow um, traction in too many places. So we, we like very much reaching out to the regions. And I think, sorry if I'm spieling slightly, actually. No, no, it's very interesting. I don't get the chance to talk about myself very often, especially <laughs> when my wife's around. But the thing is that what, what I would say is that when we do a webinar, I, I can always say to people that are coming in to speak, look, the one thing we're, we're doing, and I'm sure other people do it as well, but the one thing for sure is you'll have an audience as far north as Edinburgh and as far south as Brighton. So you're getting a representation of many people up and down this country. There might be 30 people at the webinar, but they're all spread out up and down the country. And, that, and I really think some people like that point. Yeah, I like that as well. It's very tangible because when I came to that event and we had that speaker from the Scottish Parliament, mm. it, it, was mu it was much more tangible and much more digestible than 
just a highlight from an interview clip on the news, right? Yeah. You get to see the whole picture and you get to see what that lady represented and what, what she was talking about and asked questions. And it, it was more, it, it was more humble, right? And that for me definitely adds value. So yeah, that's probably, that explains a lot why perhaps you can have that reach. Yeah. And I think when we, you know, I'm, 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 I mean, when you read the mission statements we had, I was listening to them at the beginning and clearly I wrote them. I almost felt there's, there's too many and it's a bit too ambitious, but still it goes back to my original point. If you don't try, nothing will happen. And with um, parliamentary debate, all I'm trying to do is, is give parliamentarians a fair hearing. So in an environment of respect. So we've had cases, you've read them in the newspaper where people become abusive and, it, and in the worst eventuality, there's physical assault and there has been murder. So I, I think, you know, what we're trying to say is, look, um, if you want to come and speak in our environment, we will not tolerate any um, bad behavior and you are entitled to give your point of view we may have people in the room that will politely agree to disagree, but they'll be polite in that debate. And I think it's that environment of respect that we like to give um, and safety to people to come and have that discussion. Now, clearly, we're not the only ones doing that, but I just thought it was um, so important to do that. Yeah, it's that element of it doesn't matter if you're not the only person, the fact that you're doing it adds that value, adds that level of respect back into society for them to then go and take that away with them and have it in their everyday life, right? It will make the, play, it will make the world a better place. And yeah. I think that's really important. And also what you're mentioning about the North and the divide, it's really interesting because I was kind of born into that. And when I was born, it was like, when I was growing up, as in, it was just always there, that, that divide was just there. It was kind of like ex an expectation. I just didn't know any different. And then when I speak to people like other guests, we had Paul Robinson, who's, a, yeah. who's an outdoor gourmet chef, and he's based in Yorkshire in, in the Moors. And he, he said, look, the, the canals are the were the motorways of Britain. You know, we're talking about industrial houses in the north that was feeding the south. And that wasn't that long ago. And the tables yeah. have turned so quickly and so suddenly we've got a generation of kids and teenagers, young adults who don't who don't know that they don't remember it it's not something that's a tangible memory and i think that's really important to reconnect and understand what the north the potential it has and what we can do to bring that potential to life it's something that uh, with one or two other people with tom um o'brien and also martin hall and ian birch who's a transport economist we wanted to form a a think tank on and we've decided it was Wolverhampton an old industrial town one where I lived for eight or nine years when I was growing up and if you if you look at some of that I mean starting off with history if we go back to which is with the point you were making with um, Mr Robinson he was talking about canals and you know if we just pluck out of the air there's so many really interesting stories of which one of which I'll bore you with if you don't mind am very i allowed to yeah yeah it's very interesting so, so you know we all we've all been many of us to see the film titanic 
or, or if we haven't seen the latest version, we've seen one of the previous versions, because I don't know how many films they've made, but there've been several. <laughs> I've lost count. <laughs> yeah, and of course, I think, I think that's a story that everybody, it's a truly alarming story in many respects, but um, again, a rather interesting one. And with the uh, Titanic and the Midlands, you know, yes, the Titanic was principally built in Belfast, but of course, components for it were subcontracted out up and down the country. And, you know, take, for example, the anchors of the Titanic. So they were built at Noah Hingley's, which was a large, well, if you like, um, firm of forge masters, and, and they became precision engineers in forging as well. So basically, they, they're a very large organization, and they won the order for the three Titanic anchors the center anchor was, I think, about 16 tons, which is fairly big. Yeah. When they produced the center anchor, which was the biggest of the three, they needed eight horses. And by horses, I mean um, horses built for the transportation of goods, not, not race horses, to move the anchor the two miles from the steel forge to the railway sidings where it was going to be transported up to Fleetwood in Lancashire and across the Irish Sea to Belfast. But they decided, because they wanted a bit of public relations and a little bit of advertising, so they decided to hook up 20 horses to move the anchor because it made on a Sunday afternoon a big spectacle of this cutting edge innovation of the time, the Titanic, this, you know, concord of its day, if you like. And the order for the freight movement of the Titanic was actually won in the freight office of Wolverhampton Railway Station. So they actually won the, won the contract to move the anchor. I love all this Midlands history. So, and then they moved it up to um, Lancashire and you can still see it on the sea floor a hundred and whatever years later, when you see films the Titanic, there's the center anchor sitting nicely. So they clearly made it well. It's still doing all right. And the anchor chains, I mean, you, this stuff you just can't make up. I think the anchor chains for that anchor were about a hundred tons. Wow. It's, just, it's just amazing stuff, isn't it? And that was Midlands Engineering. And, you know, that, that story... I think you have to pinch yourself because, you know, that story could be told thousands of times over about so many things that were manufactured and built and sent overseas. So, you know, without being little British about it, maybe there'll be, um, this is the age of re a re-emergence of some of this engineering because maybe, you know, the offshoring that's taken place in China, and I'm not trying to be controversial, I'm not anti-Chinese, but maybe some of it would be best brought back and we can do a bit more here. That would be fantastic. Secondly, nearly finished spieling, um, trolley buses. You know, one of the things we're moving with this think tank, one of the initiatives is, can we bring back trolley buses? Because for those of the listeners that don't know what a trolley bus is, it's an electric bus. It draws its power from the overhead lines and in the 1920s, Wolverhampton actually had the biggest trolley bus system in the world. And as a child in the 1960s, when they were still around just, I could take a trolley bus from the suburbs of Wolverhampton into the central Wolverhampton. It was climate change friendly 
Now, of course, climate change then, if you'd have mentioned the word climate change, I think people would have thought, what clothes do I wear on a hot day? Uh, in other words, what do I change into according to the climate? Because people didn't use that word then, and I don't think we were particularly aware of it. But today, of course, electric buses look pretty good. So it'd be great to have them back. And the last point I'd make, not only were these trolley buses uh, climate change friendly, but they were built in Wolverhampton. So, so they were manufactured in the town that, that we were using them in. How good is that? I mean, today, I mean, people would fall off the back of a seat if that happened. Sorry if I'm sounding a little bit whimsical and um, a little bit um, like I don't get out much. But I think all these things we want to talk about is and have the debate. Definitely. And they're fair points as well, because I think in other countries, you know, local manufacturing is something that every local government, every nation would value. Um, to have China manufacturing everything for the world and that being a standard is a bit, it's a bit unfair and it's a bit reckless. You're just putting all your eggs in one basket. So I completely understand the point. Yeah. Um, so... I want to go back to intelligence forums and yep. I want to go through the experience. So I'm, I'm a visitor. I want yep. to come and listen. What, what's the experience? Talk me through it. I come in, I sit so down, I listen. There's... In the construction of this, the first thing is we like boardroom tables because about 20 to 30 people to me is a lovely number. Probably 25 is perfect. 15 is good. If you've got six people and they want to have a really good conversation, that's great. But too many people, not so good. And I think that none of us have equal ability, clearly. Some people are very good at running numbers. Some people are very good at public speaking. Some people are, you know, very good chefs. Um, you get the drift. We all have different skill sets. But I wanted to provide an equality in the room. So what I don't like, and it's not a crime if somebody does it, but the minute somebody stands up to present on a board, to me, there's something that's very unnerving about it. It's trying to, what they're possibly trying to do is exert authority on a room. And I don't really want anybody exerting authority because I want an equality in the room. So going back to, if people come in and we're very fortunate to have somebody that's um, a leading light of a charity or they're running a quite an interesting business or they're from the world of politics or they're a very revered economist. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, the day you came in, we had a very revered and understated economist yeah. who served three times on the Monetary Policy Committee. Yeah. And I think she was the only person, external member of the MPC to do that. Yeah, she was fantastic. She was amazing. Yeah. And the thing about it is, we, you know, and I think she totally, I didn't have to have the discussion with her. I mean, she didn't want to be treated anything other than on an equal basis. So, you know, to bring in people like that, that just want to, to sit and have that equality and, and for the audience, for the people that attend, that they can sit next to the um, these people we read about in the newspapers and we, we, we're curious about meeting, clearly they've got a large intellect, uh, that, that they're accessible. And, and that's all I'm trying to really achieve is that sort of you can come in, 
sit around the table, you're very welcome. It's inclusive, not exclusive. So people say to me, you've got to be exclusive. No, 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 not for me. It's got to be that anybody that's interested in the topic, sadly, we have to monetize it. So with that, we don't take sponsorship. So nobody, hopefully, is going to start leaning on us to sell or to, you know, we don't have a problem with people describing their business, but we have a problem with somebody selling something. Um, so as long as they're prepared to, um, yeah, so sponsorship we don't do. So it has to run itself on a membership fee. So when I say inclusive, the membership fee is not um, exclusive, it's inclusive in cost. And, you know, that, that's how it moves forward. And that's what we're trying to achieve. Amazing. So typically someone would come, they would listen to, is it three speakers? Well, we, 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 <laughs> it depends on my bad organization. <laughs> I, can be, I can be chaotic. So we've had occasions where we've had six speakers and we have to ask them to do sort of seven or eight minutes each. Wow. And, you know, on a good day, we, we've had, um, and even, yeah, so we, we have people and, you know, I'm so lucky, really, so lucky, because I'll give you an example. And I hope, I hope it's um, okay to repeat this on public airways. So when, when we had lockdown, with the, the, the people we bring in to speak, I, I just get so excited about it. So lockdown arrives, and I opened my diary about the second week of lockdown, and I'd written the year before to Mervyn King's office, Lord King, and, you know, I'd asked if he could speak and naturally he's a very busy man and his very charming pub PA or, or executive assistant replied and said, look, he, you know, he's terribly busy, but perhaps you could ask in about a year's time because you never know your luck. And that was it. A year later, I sent the email saying, you know, I did speak to you a year ago and I, I still appreciate he's probably got even busier than a year before. And, you know, within about eight minutes, she came back and she said, well, remind me what this is all about. And I said, we've got an audience, it's UK centric. And by the way, like Lord King, I'm from Wolverhampton. He was from Wolverhampton, you know, not that I don't think that made a great difference, but I thought I'd put it in there. <laughs> and, you know, maybe he could join a webinar. And I said, I know he's, he's so much in demand, but what might work is if he attended half the webinar and he spoke perhaps for 15 minutes and she came back and she said look he, what he'll do he'll speak for five or six minutes he'll then take questions for 20 to 25 minutes uh, so your audience you know they'll have concerns they'll have questions he'd rather do that therefore he will agree to attend you know and to me i got i get so excited by this stuff you know, because, you know, he was one of those guys I was reading about in 2007-8 that was top of the pile, flying around the world, trying to rescue it. Maybe I'm being dramatic, but truth, mm. I think. Not so, true. you know, to have these people in, I just get so, I personally get so excited. Though I hope everybody else does, but that, that excites me. And, um, yeah, that's what I'm trying to achieve. Trying to achieve that bringing of people together that potentially can make a difference. And, and, and not 
to be um, in doing that. I've had one or two people saying that I'm an elitist. No, um, absolutely not. Um, because anybody's welcome to attend as long as they're running a legal business. Yeah. Don't think, you know, that's it. That's absolutely fair. Yeah, definitely. I think what I noticed was the diversity and the fact that everyone had a different background. I mean, we had different ages, different genders, different occupations. Uh, We even had a few different nationalities, if I remember correctly. And yeah. I think that just shows the level of inclusivity that you, you cater for. And I think that's amazing. It's what we try to achieve in Beautiful Minds as well. I think, yes, it's been less than a year. We've had like, you know, 15 different nationalities regarding guest speakers and different backgrounds, ages. Uh, it's incredible what you can actually achieve when you, when you just don't filter on a narrow category basis. Like you just want to speak to someone and that person wants to help and then you create something amazing worth remembering and what amazes me is that when you mentioned how excited you got then and i look at when you started back in 2008 like i get excited the same way today so it's amazing to see that even after 10 years you don't seem to lose that which is i think it's incredible yeah i think i think that um i i, I guess i guess we have to pinch ourselves there's so there's so many interesting people that are doing amazing things and i i you know i open the newspaper and you you and and often they're the most modest people in the world they don't i think they're probably oblivious to the fact that they're doing these wonderful things so i i just think it's um if you're running beautiful minds if you're running intelligence forums or any other forum for that matter that there's just so much meat on the bone absolutely and i think what you mentioned is really important because oftentimes the people who are oblivious to what they're achieving or what they're doing out there for the world because they're so focused on it. I mean, that's a hallmark of a high performer and someone who's destined for great things. So that definitely makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what is it about intelligent forums that keeps people coming back? Because I know the community that you've built is so tight knit and people do come back and there's some very loyal members that have been there for years. Well, uh, that's kind of you to ask. I, of course, in the current financial climate, we've had one or two people that have contacted me and one or two people that haven't contacted me to say that they're resigning their membership because of financial duress, because their businesses are under such difficulty. And there are one or two people that have actually supported us for three, four years, and they've found it difficult. And I've tried to help where I can. but. What is it that, I'll answer your question, what is it that people want to come back for? I think at the moment with the electronic version of our offering, which we will be continuing with forevermore, uh, as, as long as, as, as well as live events, I think it's the quality of the speakers. You know, I hope it is, because what I, what I decided I had to do was focus on one thing, to try, try and not be good at six things, the focus on one thing and what I've done really is to focus on the people that we have speaking so um, whilst they're not you know necessarily Bill Clinton Bill Clinton and um, um, sort of Tony Blair and you know what I call the A-list yeah. they're still yeah. really great that what I say they're great speakers still and I think people want to hear 
what is it that the person that's employing 300 people that's running this business that's grown it from you know 30 people or perhaps grown it from their back bedroom and they're now employing 300 people so there's 300 people running around the uk with hope and opportunity that that was that didn't exist 10 years ago what what is it that makes these people tick and what you know is there one thing they're going to say that people can walk away with and think oh i think that might just make a difference so i think there's that i think also often we'll get a politician coming in and you know these people whether they sit in the house of lords or whatever they've done you know they, they've become quite celebrated for their success in life but when you analyze it they've often started from the most humble of backgrounds and achieve really great things. So I think, again, it gives us all hope that we can do the same. And, you know, I think that's what it is. And I, it gives me, again, great satisfaction. If somebody rings me up, one of our members, and says, well, thank you so much. And occasionally I get this, quite rarely, but I do get it. And people say, you know, I had a cup of tea with XYZ in the House of Lords last week, and it was, it was a result of your meeting where they came in to speak. And I've never been in there before, and I'm so grateful for it. I love that stuff, that I feel that we've made a small difference. So why do they come back? I think they come back for those reasons. Um, you know, and our members, lastly, I suppose what it is, is this. And, may, you know, I, I don't mean I'm exclusively right. I don't mean that this would apply to everybody. So I'm, I'm being generic not necessarily specific but if you ask people to subscribe something to this forum and there are one or two cases where people actually don't subscribe financially but they have to perform a duty whether it's taking photographs or whether for that for that matter it's writing up when people have spoken but if you ask them that they have to contribute to this forum mainly financially by paying a small subscription or contributing then you get great people attending because they've got the ability to think two ways they're not only thinking about naturally themselves but they're also thinking okay i've got a seat at this table how do i justify the seat at this table how do you know what is my contribution to keeping this show on the road if you run everything for free and there are forums that do that, and it's certainly not a crime. There's two questions you have to ask yourself. First thing is you will, it will always attract, and I know this from my own experience when I started, you'll get lovely people attending, but you'll equally get people that want to extract everything and contribute nothing. That's one thing I'd point out. And there is, there is something else actually that's, um, uh, again, it's not a crime, but it, actually, often um, the audience is the product, is the, if you like, the, um, they're being sold to. It's a bit like Facebook. Yes, it's free, but you're the product. So, what we like to do is provide neutrality. We don't want anybody selling anything. We, we, we have that. Uh, we try and keep it as neutral as possible. Where, where we probably don't get it entirely right is, of course, if we're in somebody's boardroom, they have the right, quite rightfully so, to speak for five or six minutes about what their business does and, and who they are 
because they provided that boardroom. But that's not a selling exercise. Um, and those are my views. I hope you don't think I sound bonkers. No, not at all, no. I think where you're coming from is a place of experience where you've spoken to and dealt with different types of people. So obviously now your values are more aligned with the direction of the, of the uh, in, intelligence forums and the mission yeah. statement that, you, well, that I read out at the beginning. So it makes complete sense. And I think over time, that's naturally going to evolve even more as more types of people start to hear about it and join and you get different types of speakers perhaps. Yep. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. One thing I've noticed though, just speaking to you now is how well connected you are. What piece of advice would you have for people out there who perhaps yeah. haven't got those relationship building skills? Well, I'd give one bit of advice. Uh, and it's, you know, when I was a kid at school, it's a long while ago now, I was actually an exceedingly bad uh, pupil, uh, unlike yourself, that went to a good uni red brick university. And the, the only thing I was actually any good at was writing letters. And I'd write these letters to, you know, I loved getting out um, my fountain pen and, you know, sort of spent hours practicing handwriting and all that. And it's something that about um, ooh, 15 years ago, I started to occasionally do again. And what we were doing at Intelligence Forums three years ago, we, we would get round a table, we'd have a topic, and the topic might be discussed amongst those attending. What was really missing was we didn't have an expert on the topic. We were all involved in our businesses. So if it was what transport links are needed in the Midlands, it was very much the layman's point of view, which is valid. I think it's valid but we didn't have the expert. And then, you'd, you know, it goes back to my point, you read the newspapers and you think, God, Lord, I'd like to meet so-and-so. What an interesting um, point they're making in the press. And I, I then had this moment, and I think one or two people thought I'd lost the plot, but I rather withdrew to my office at home and I got the fountain pen out. In fact, I think I bought two more fountain pens and a selection of different colored inks. And I thought, now I'm going to write to all these people that I wanted to meet over the last 10, 20 years. <laughs> and for about five, I didn't write, of course, hundreds of letters a day. But what I did do is write um, probably, I don't know, 25, 30 letters a week. And I realized I loved writing them. You know, I just love the colours of the ink and the sort of shape of the handwriting. And then I suddenly realised at the end of four weeks, my Lord, I hadn't actually received a reply. <laughs> so I was having a wonderful time writing them and then suddenly thought, oh, my Lord. And then if I may, if you could indulge me in me dropping two names. Uh, and I'm going to drop names with a caveat because the caveat is, please appreciate, I didn't know either of them. I just wrote them. And, and these two gentlemen both kindly had somebody reply on their behalf. They both had a PA, so the PAs replied. And I was actually in a coffee shop somewhere in the Strand in London, sitting there doing a few notes at a table, having a cup of coffee on my own. And I looked at my inbox and there it was, a gentleman called Lord Clement Jones had emailed me to say, 
um, well, his PA had at least, saying that he, he would in principle quite like to speak and um, perhaps I could furnish her with a few more details. And I suddenly thought, my God, the letters work. And within an hour, I think I'd been um, focusing on the House of Lords for the preceding couple of weeks. Lord Flight, another interesting business person that sits in the House of Lords, you know, he had his PA reply. So suddenly at the end of that day, at the end of four weeks of writing not too many letters, two really interesting people wanting to speak. And, you know, that's been a game changer because those people, you know, I suddenly thought, well, I'm going to write more letters. And, you, you know, um, last night, again, another really interesting gentleman sent me a, a text. Perhaps he couldn't read my writing, so he sent me a text. And, you know, this was um, George Magnus, who's, um, he hasn't uh, got a date yet. He's in principle said he'd like to speak at a webinar. And um, as you may or may not know, I think he's a professor at Oxford, but he writes quite a lot for the Financial Times, the Daily Telegraph. He's an economist. He, he's a really interesting chap. He's an expert on China. And, you know, again, I get so excited when I see this stuff. And that's what, that's what we love to do. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. I think when you reach out to someone and they reply and you haven't actually met each other, I think that's really rewarding because it just shows that there's that element of you know, building a tribe or socialising. And we're all social creatures, aren't we? So, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think also what, to reassure a lot of young people, by that I don't mean in a patronising, I know it all way, what I'd say is that the thing that's, because I'm not actually um, an important person, I am just a person that organises a forum. What I'd say is that people that have come in to speak have been, they just have a strong sense of public duty. They've reached their position of influence and what they feel is they're going to put something back in the pot. So if it helps young people out there that might listen to this and clearly if they are listening to it they don't get out much because i can be a bit boring but what what, what i'd say to them is do not be deterred do do not listen to the person that says no you shouldn't do that because you well you know you just shouldn't always reach out and a lot of these people that i'm waxing lyrical about they have a strong sense of duty. They want to help. They've reached where they are in life and they want to put things back in. And it's, it's actually immensely inspiring. And there are a lot of them out there. Yeah, there are. Yeah, there's some amazing people out there who do some great stuff. And that, that comment you made about public duty, I think it's really underestimated by the likes of the general public who don't come into physical contact with them they just assumingly go about their lives thinking well why would that person care but actually they do and they're doing a lot behind the scenes that perhaps isn't on social media it's not on the news it's not on the radio wherever you, you know, listen to things or watch things i think that disconnect is growing and i think it takes more people like what we're doing for example to reconnect or bring them closer together so that that connection isn't lost forever. So yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very important. So a, a question I like to ask a lot of my guests is, uh, what, what scares you?
I suppose running a small business like everybody in the world, I, I think there are a couple of things. One that I want to keep it going. And, and, you know, I'm not running a multinational corporation. It's, it's like everything at the moment. It's got its challenges. So I worry about that, of course. I, I also am quite sensitive to the audience. It's very difficult to please everybody. In fact, I would suggest it is impossible. What um, I can aspire to doing is trying to please the majority or over 50% of the people. And, you know, I think that, um, I think what really scares me is if we've got three or four speakers and one of them, um, for any reason, um, offends anybody, and I don't think, certainly it's not our attention, uh, and any of the people I've mentioned would never d dream of doing that, but, but you never know. And therefore, I, I, I just, I never want to offend anybody, intention one. So if anybody is, that's never been my attention. And the second thing is that I, I just want to keep it stimulating. So there's that. I think the other thing is, again, I'm not running Chatham House, um, which I would consider to be at the top of the pile. But, you know, maybe one day somebody would like to take this on and take, you know, when I become. Um, totally balmy and and take it over from me because I, I think really it's only trying to do reasonable and good things uh, I, I, and there are a lot of organizations out there doing reasonable and good things but there's definitely room for this one so I, I you know I'd, I'd hate to see this expire and, and fizzle out when I become um, you know agent, aged and infirm so there are those things does that sound fair? Yeah, absolutely. I think they're all fair points that perhaps on a day-to-day -day basis, a lot of people wouldn't think about. But then, you know, when you look at the overall strategy and the long-term vision that you obviously you know, care about and, and it's your responsibility to actually think of those things, I guess it's, it's, it's very clear. Yeah, yeah I think, I think there's, a, there's something else I'd point out. We've got something called, uh, there's one more point on that. We've got something called an influencers page. I think that has a different meaning in the world of social media. Um, what we mean by that is people we feel they know their topic really well. They are, um, if you like, we see them as a good influence on intelligence forums. And we have a, a small relationship with them. They've been in to speak and they're happy to lend their name to our influencers page because they feel that we've if you like, um, it's been a comfortable experience for them and they appreciate that we're trying to do only the right thing, not the wrong thing. And, you know, I feel a responsibility to those people. It's a growing list of people. There's no, there's no um, you know, there's no end on that. It could be 500 people that we've had in to speak eventually. I think there's about 30 there today. But I feel, you know, not only responsibilities to the members, people that actually support this and actually attend, I actually feel a responsibility to these people that have actually lent their name to the proposition. So, you know, I, I'm very careful, um, I suppose, as everybody is in my approach, that I don't um, get it wrong. Yeah, no, that's absolutely fair. I think 
social media has definitely given a twist to the word influence or even influencers. I don't know if that word even existed yeah. when I was when I was younger, but um, yeah, I think when you talk about key opinion leaders or key trend leaders, these are people kind of you know exert a certain level of influence and are able to support or collaborate with with certain projects or forums, like you said. So I think yeah, that is super important and that sense of duty, right, kind of gives you accountability to deliver more and do better than you did yesterday. So I think, yeah, that is important. Uh, another question I like to ask my guests is, does anything keep you awake at night? Like, do you, do you sleep well? Is there anything on your mind? I don't know what it is in lockdown. I've been sleeping. I, I would have thought it would have been the other way around. I've been sleeping. I, I mean, I was staggered last night. I went to bed in this heat at 10 o'clock and the next thing I knew it was five this morning. Um, so. What, what I'd say to you is that, um, of course, um, I think the, there are various things about, uh, it's, I'll touch on the new world, the coronavirus world. So clearly I worry about, you know, I, I worry about, I suppose like everybody, I worry about the economy. How, you know, is it affecting, it is affecting so many people we know. So that there is an element of that. I think also trying to actually navigate what a, a small business like Intelligence Forums, how does it navigate the world of coronavirus? And what do we need to do to actually um, prepare ourselves for the fact that this thing might still be here in two years time without a vaccine and we have to learn to live with it. So. You know, I worry, I worry about navigating that um, sequence of events. I, I suppose because we've always been a live round table forum that, you know, I'm slowly getting my head round, and I have already, I suppose, got my head round, the fact that we will be a virtual forum and we will continue to be a virtual forum even when we return to those live events. We will not run as many live events because... Um, I think I've become conscious, and again, it's it's been a few sleepless nights, where um, you, you you realise how much time, and I'm sure this affects everybody, and a lot of people listening to this will resonate with it. So you you know you become conscious of how you use your time because at the moment in this lockdown world, by eleven o'clock in the morning, I've achieved so much because I'm not moving from my kitchen table. Um, so, you know, I start work about eight in the morning. It's in that first three hours of the day when I used to be navigating tubes, angry commuters, um, discontented dogs, and a fleet of other challenges. Uh, I'm not having to do that. So I think really looking at, there's an opportunity there, but it's been, a, if you like, a sort of, how do we get it right opportunity, not wrong. In the new way of working, because I think things aren't going to go back. Um, and I'm not original in this. Every every newspaper feels the same. We're not going back to where we were six months ago. Yeah, I think uh, colossal change has been forced upon us, and yeah. in almost every company or every person I've spoken to, they've they've said the same thing. So yeah, you're absolutely right in that sense. What that normal, what that new normal will look like, I, I'm not entirely sure. I know a lot of buzzwords have been thrown out the window, things like work-life balance, and they've been replaced with things like 
work-life integration. We had a an influencer on uh, Kimia Kalbasi. Yeah. She's she's a food influencer and many other things. And she spoke about this and she said, "Look, what work-life balance looks to me is different to what work-life balance looks like to a forty-five-year-old man with two kids to feed and you know wives at home, for example." So, you know how you integrate work into life needs to be the new way of thinking about it. And I think that's going to create a huge mentality shift as well. So yeah, kind of similar to what you're saying. So yes, it's interesting. Um, Another question I like to ask my guests is if I was to give you a zoom link to speak to a younger Harry Corbett, so maybe 20 years old, 25, what would you say on that call? Well, that's an alarming thing, that is. So, with the benefit of hindsight, which is a wonderful thing, I think really that to not waste time. So, like you're doing, I don't, how old are you? Do you mind me asking? 26. Great age. So, you're doing this interview today. You do a lot of interviews. You're building this proposition. And, and I would encourage people to do more of those sort of things, whatever it may be, whether it's charitable work, whether it's further education, whether it's um, engaging with communities that have a like-minded opinion, or perhaps it's working with political, a political party, if that's um, the inclination. But just to engage with what you're interested in and want to do, and be inspired by, by events and and want to contribute and never ever doubt that don't lack confidence because there are a lot of really good people out there that will um, be pillars of support to, to assist. And I think the thing is to engage. And I, I really, you know, it's fine to go to the pub and have a pint of beer and, you know, have some moments out. I've also, and I think it may be a grumpy old man thing, but, you know, people are so keen on organising their holidays, which is fine, you know, and clearly for the holiday companies, we kind of need that right now. But, you know, it'd be wonderful if people spent, uh, if you like, uh, the two weeks on the holiday, looking forward to the 50 weeks of work, where I feel that with the many people in the lines of work they're in, because perhaps it's not really what they're equipped to do or they're happy doing, they spend, if you like, 50 weeks of work looking forward to the two weeks of holiday. So I think it's to um, that responsibility of finding the right um, opportunity for people and more opportunities for people. And, and then I think, um, so just, just to really engage. And I think also to, to say if things aren't right. So if there aren't op- opportunities to actually bang the drum and say, well, what are you going to do about it to people? Um, easy for me to sit here and say that of course but just to engage with the world and don't don't doubt for a minute that somebody won't listen because i think there are plenty of good people out there that will that's what i think yeah you make a good point i think a word you mentioned earlier when we started this interview was fulfillment and i think when you talked about those two weeks of holidays and then looking forward to the work when you get back and using that time as a genuine moment to recharge so you can do great things for those other 50 weeks. I think that's where fulfillment comes in and that's where you can really show the best you. Yep. Uh, what, what does fulfillment mean to you? 
I think what it what it means to me at 62 years of age is having a reason to get out of bed. And it's the most important thing in the world because, um, you know, I so look forward to the, the little challenges we have to deal with. So if I have to speak to somebody like yourself on the telephone, everything like that I look forward to, engaging with people, talking about the proposition. So it's finding a reason to get out of bed. I'm not suggesting for everybody that necessarily is work. It might be that people want to work for charity. It might be voluntary work. It might be a fleet of different things. But to find a reason to get out of bed and to engage in society and, and to do things, I think that's the thing. To, to really want to, want to give something a go. And fulfillment, to me, is, is having those opportunities to engage. And also, um, so, so I think we need a little bit of adrenaline. So it's having things which stretch us a bit. Um, I, I, think, I think that's really just incredibly interesting. Uh, I mean, I, I'll give you an example. So sometimes I'm really surprised. You know, I was sitting in a cafe again. I spent, used to spend too much money and time in cafes. So that's another resolution that I'm going to be in cafes less. But I was in this um, cafe about, oh, I don't know, six or nine months ago, and a very eminent Scottish politician called me up out of the blue because I'd written to them. And, and I suddenly realised I was on my back foot for about um, half a minute because I was slightly, oh, my God, you know, I've got so-and-so on the end of this phone. And then I, when I finished the phone call, because they just phoned to say, look, you'd written, and what is it you want me to do and what are you? which are perfectly legitimate questions. And obviously, because they like to do things, they just picked up the phone. But, you know, I thought, God, I'd really miss that if I didn't have that in my life. You know, somebody putting me under pressure for a minute or two. And, and those conversations don't always go my way. Uh, I mean, they don't always ring up and say, look, I, I tell you what, you're amazing. I can't wait to do whatever it is you want me to do. Sometimes they say, I'm not going to do it. But, you know, I love that challenge. So I, I think we all need that. I think we need that. So for me at 62, it's getting a reason to get out of bed. Can I help somebody in that process? Because if we look back to 2007 age, several people said to me, why are you doing what you're doing? Because you're not being paid to bring an economist from legal in general in to speak to those 14 people in that boardroom. You're not being paid, so why are you doing it? And I think that um, I'd reply, maybe I'm deluded, but if we, out of bringing these people together, create one job at the end of this year, then I'll feel that I've done something really worthwhile. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah. yeah. And then... I think going back to the point that you made where, you know, everyone needs to find an opportunity for themselves and, you know, to take it with two hands. And I think that's a really important point that a lot of us miss. You know, a lot of things are taken for granted. And I know another story of mine is my dad's Croatian. And typically every November when I was a kid, we'd go to Croatia in his hometown. And it's traditional there to put a candle on a graveyard of a family member that passed away. And as I'm walking there, I remember I'd ask my dad like so many stupid questions. Like I was eight years old, really young, and I'd say, "Dad, who was that guy? Who was that woman?" Like expecting him to know everyone because it was such a small town. 
and he'd say like oh that could have been you know the world's best mathematician or that could have been you know the world's best basketball player but they never got there because you know they never really took that opportunity and I remember it's, it probably in hindsight it's a bit of a morbid memory but it kind of made me realize at that time that yeah the clock is ticking and you've got to use that time wisely so yeah I think all those points you mentioned kind of tie into that as well so it's it's, it's good to reinforce it yeah and um I think we also need to pinch ourselves and just a lot of us do um and think gosh you know I get out of bed in the morning and 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 you know what a what a wonderful country we live in yeah we do yeah it's an amazing place really and I, I think although nothing's perfect in life um that there's clearly a lot of debate on diversity and you know as a forum you were very kind you said that we seem to have a diverse crew I, I would say that we're no, nowhere near diverse enough um and we've got many challenges on that and i i think you know if we look at the city and i'm not an expert on the city i've worked there long enough but again is it really it's got more diverse because i think they've got brains from all over the world there but that's one sense of diversity but i'm not sure that it's entirely equal opportunities for all i'm not convinced totally it's clearly making a move to improve that's fantastic as a forum we need to do more far more but again it goes back to be sent as long as one's sensitive to that and um we want to try and do more yeah that makes sense yeah and um i think london in particular is going to change a lot more so those opportunities will spring up to add diversity where possible it, it doesn't always come naturally at the beginning yeah. Um, but no, it's, it's important to keep it in the back of your mind. So yeah, that's that's cool. Uh, Harry, I just want to thank you for coming on. It's it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, Great pleasure. I've learned a lot, and I think you know what you're doing is fantastic. Just to say it again, and yeah, let, let's stay in touch. Let's maybe plan a part two. Who knows? Sometime early next year, and see how things are going. Thank you so much. Very kind. Thank you for your time, and I wish you the best with your next interviews.